Section 6 of The Ring and the Book An Interpretation by Francis Bickford Hornbrook. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 6 Count Guido Franceschini. We have heard the story of The Ring and the Book as related first by the poet, who has put the life of his spirit into it, then by Voices of the Rome of 1698 speaking on one side or the other on the street or on either side in the drawing-rooms. These speak, however, as representative characters. But now we hear the narrative of one who has a vital personal interest in the matter and is an integral element in the story. Count Guido Franceschini knows that every word he says may count for life or death. Guido appears to plead his cause before the judges of the Roman court. He has been severely racked, but he is determined to assume the most gracious mood. He thanks the court for giving him wine when he had expected only vinegar. He disclaims all bitterness of feeling for the sufferings he had been compelled to undergo. They were only what the law demanded. And, after all, all these physical sufferings were as nothing compared with the rasp-tooth toying with his brain during the last four years. The poverty of his home, the exposure of its economies, the scandalous reports about his treatment of his wife and her actual misconduct. These things had caused him more anguish than the court could inflict. Its mistake had been simply to make a stone roll down hill, to make him ope his mouth in his own defence. He acknowledges that he killed Pompilia and the Comparini, and he proposes to give the right interpretation of the irregular deed. His defence falls into three main divisions. The first division, with the exception of the introduction just described, is entirely devoted to an account of his life experience up to the time of his marriage to Pompilia. He relates this to show that his present condition is due to the fact that he had been willing to walk in the path prescribed for him. He relates the history of his family, recalls its former wealth and power, and notes the poverty into which it had fallen. We became poor as Francis or our Lord. He says he was led by this state of his family to consider why such an one, whose grandfather sold tripe, was adding a fourth tower to his purchased pile, while his own palace could hardly show a turret sound. Why another, whose father dressed vines, should roll in wealth and luxury. He observed that the first was a soldier, the second a priest. He thought he might do as they had done, if he should enter either the army or the church. To this, however, his relatives would not listen. It would not do for him, the oldest son, to risk his life in battle, or to doom his family to extinction by taking the vow of celibacy. That might do for his brothers, but not for him. So Guido went to Rome, took minor orders, which brought him near the church, and yet left him free from some of his obligations, and entered the service of a cardinal. In that service he waited for thirty years. At the end of that time he became discouraged and said to his friends, I am tired. Arezzo's air is good to breathe. Vittiano, 
one limes flocks of thrushes there. A leathern coat costs little and lasts long. Let me bid hope good-bye, content at home. His friends protested against his withdrawal. Like gamblers, they did not like to have one of their number leave too much discouraged at his losses. But his brother, the Abate Paolo, said to him, Count you are counted, still you've coat to back, not cloth of gold and tissue, as we hoped, but cloth with sparks and spangles on its frieze, from camp, court, church, enough to make a shine, entitle you to carry home a wife. With a proper dowry, let the worst betide. Why, it was just a wife you meant to take. Paolo found out that Pietro and Violante had a daughter, and a small fortune. He told Guido, She's young, pretty, and rich. Your noble, classic, choice. Is it to be a match? Guido accepted all, and was married to Pompilia. He says that when his trouble came, he was asked, What? No blush at the avowal? You dared buy a girl of age beseems your granddaughter, like ox or ass? Are flesh and blood a ware? Are heart and soul a chattel? In reply to this, he boldly avows that his marriage was purely a business transaction. So much money for so much nobility. Honour is a privilege, worth the market price, to be sold to the one who will pay most for it. True, he says, Pietro and Violante soon grew tired of the bargain, just as others may of a picture they have purchased. They found his way of living very different from what they had imagined it, and could not endure it. But Guido claims, I paid down all engaged for, to a doit, delivered them just that which, their life long, they hungered in the hearts of them to gain. Incorporation with nobility thus in word and deed, for that they gave me wealth. Pietro and Violante had the name they bargained for, and the lot was none other than the daily hap of purblind greed that, dog-like, still drops bone, grasps shadow, and then howls the case is hard. Guido discusses the obligations of marriage and seeks to justify his treatment of Pompilia and his conduct in general. He declares that Pompilia broke her pact, and that he had a right to be harsh. He denies that marriage called for love on his part. If someone's daughter had avowed her love for him, and appealed to his love for her, then, indeed, the lady had not reached a man of ice. I would have rummaged, ransacked at the word those old odd corners of an empty heart for remnants of dim love the long disused and dusty crumblings of romance. But here we talk of just a marriage, if you please, the everyday conditions and no more. Guido had married Pompilia as one would purchase a hawk, and if the hawk does not render the expected service, he has a right to twist her neck. He says, The obligation I incurred was just to practice mastery, prove my mastership. Pompilia's duty was, Submit herself, 
afford me pleasure, perhaps cure my bile. He maintains that Pompilia had no more right to complain of his treatment than the monk who found the claustral regimen too sharp because he had fancied Francis manner meant roast quails. Guido then says, The couple, father and mother of my wife, returned to Rome, published before my lords, put into print, made circulate far and wide that they had cheated me, who cheated them. Pompilia, I supposed their daughter, drew breath first mid Rome's worst rankness, through the deed of a drab and a rogue, was by-blow, bastard babe of a nameless strumpet, passed off, palmed on me, as the daughter with the dowry. Daughter? Dirt of the kennel. Dowry? Dust of the street. Not more, not less, not else but, oh, ah, assuredly a Franceschini and my very wife. He then states what Pompilia ought, out of sheer gratitude, because he had not turned her out of doors, to have said, after her reputed parents had fled. Why, here's the, word for word, so much, no more, a vow she made, her pure, spontaneous speech to my brother, the Abate, at first blush, ere the good impulse had begun to fade. So did she make confession for the pair, so pour forth praises in her own behalf. In answer to the accusation that this was the language of a letter which he himself had written and caused her to trace, he allows its truth and urges that he only made her see what it behoved her see and say and do, feel in her heart and with her tongue declare. He seeks to justify this by comparing it with the act of the priest who causes the palsy-smitten finger to make the sign of the cross at the critical time, or who baptizes the inarticulate babe who may grow up and disown what is done. But, Guido continues, Pompilia soon discovered she was young and fair, and instead of acting as, in view of the reports of her birth, she should have acted, she displayed her charms and found the lover in the priest Caponsacchi. It was in the house from the window, at the church from the hassock, where the theatre lent its lodge, or staging for the public show left space, that still Pompilia Nice must find herself launching her looks forth, letting looks reply as arrows to a challenge, on all sides ever new contribution to her lap, till, one day, what is it knocks at my clenched teeth but the cup full, cursed collected, all for me? And I must needs drink, drink this gallant's praise, that minion's prayer, the other fop's reproach, and come at the dregs to Caponsacchi. It is true he was harsh, but it would have been better for all if he had been even more severe, and, he says, if I, instead of threatening, talking big, showing hair powder, a prodigious pinch for poison in a bottle, making believe at desperate doings with a bauble sword, and other bugaboo and baby work, had, 
with the vulgarest household implement, calmly and quietly, cut off, clean through bone but one joint of one finger of my wife. Why, there had followed a quick, sharp scream, some pain, much calling for plaster, damage to the dress, a somewhat sulky countenance next day, perhaps reproaches, but reflections too. So, by this time, my true and obedient wife might have been telling beads with a gloved hand, awkward a little, at pricking hearts and darts, on sampler, possibly, but well otherwise, not where Rome shudders now to see her lie. The result of the course which he did adopt was that he awoke one morning to find that Pompilia had eloped with Caponsacchi. He pursued and overtook them. Everyone blamed him, he says, for not taking his revenge at the time he found them. Then was the time, or never, to take the natural vengeance. But now, when he has killed his wife and her parents, everyone cries, so little reverence for law. The only reason why he failed to act at the critical moment at the inn must be, all think, because he was a coward. But, he says, he had been taught all his life to respect law, and for that reason he had appealed to it. Even if he were a poltroon, still he had his rights. So he had Pompilia and Caponsacchi arrested, and found, in the room where they had been, letters which, he declares, it would be useless for them to say they did not write. He then relates the course which Law took in the matter. It had inflicted only mild punishment upon Pompilia and Caponsacchi, but mild as the punishment was, it proved them guilty and himself innocent. On this ground, he had applied to the court for a divorce. He's banished, and the facts, the thing. Why should Law banish innocence an inch? He is guilt, then. What else do I care to know? The adulteress lies imprisoned, whether in a well with bricks above and a snake for company, or tied by a garter to a bedpost. Much I mind what's little, least's enough and to spare. The little fillip on the coward's cheek serves as though Crabtree cudgel broke his pate but the court refused his request for a divorce, informed him that he was met by the cross suit of his wife for a separation, and also that she had been transferred to the care of her parents. His brother Paolo, who had tried, in vain, to induce the Pope to hear the case himself, was overwhelmed with the ridicule of Rome, and left Rome for some other land. After all this, Guido says, he endeavoured to steel his heart against whatever might happen, when there came the unexpected tidings of the birth of a son. I got such missives in the public place, when I sought home, with such news, mounted stair, and sat at last in the sombre gallery. T'was autumn, the old mother in bed betimes, having to bear that cold, the finer frame of her daughter-in-law had found intolerable. The brother, walking misery away o'er the mountainside with dog and gun belike. As I supped, ate the coarse bread, drank the wine, weak once, 
now acrid with a toad's head squeeze my wife's bestowment i broke silence thus let me a man manfully meet the fact confront the worst of the truth end and have peace i am irremediably beaten here the gross illiterate vulgar couple bah why they have measured forces mastered mine made me their spoil and prey from first to last they have got my name tis nailed now fast to theirs the child or changeling is anyway my wife point by point as they plan they execute they gain all and i lose all even to the lure that led to loss they have the wealth again they hazarded a while to hook me with have caught the fish and find the bait entire they even have their child or changeling back to trade with turn to account a second time they have caught me in the cavern where i fell covered my loudest cry for human aid with this enormous paving stone of shame well are we demigods or merely clay is success still attendant on desert is this we live on heaven and the final state or earth which means probation to the end why claim escape from man's predestined lot of being beaten and baffled god's decree in which i bowing bruised head acquiesce i have attained to my full fifty years about the average of us all tis said though it seems longer to the unlucky man lived through my share of life let all end here me and the house and grief and shame at once good-bye my brothers are priests and childless so that's well and thank god most for this no child leave i none after me to bear till his heart break the being of franceschini and my son and then the letter tells him that he has just that to bear and he says that he rose up like fire and fire-like roared this apparent air was a new disgrace an ignominy he could not and would not bear and he cries shall i let the filthy pest buzz flap and sting busy at my vitals and nor hand nor foot lift but let be lie still and rot resigned no i appeal to god what says himself how lessons nature when i look to learn why that i am alive am still a man with brain and heart and tongue and right hand too nay even with friends in such a cause as this to write me if i fail to take my right no more of law a voice beyond the law enters my heart quisest pro domino guido tells his judges that the serving people who knew his story agreed with him as to the course he ought to pursue and that having selected four of them he moved toward rome and arrived there on christmas eve for several days influenced by the associations of the season he delayed but on the ninth day he felt that some end must be and beckoned to his companions 
Time is come. From here to the end of the speech we have the direct defence of Guido. It is a well-known proverb that he who pleads his own case has a fool for a client. This is not true in the case of Guido. His defence is shrewd and able. Every point is urged with skill and force. He is tactful and makes the most of every opportunity. He first shows that the killing of his wife and her parents was an act of passion which might not have been committed if he had met Pompilia at the door, or even Pietro, instead of Violante. And then, why, even then, I think, in the minute that confirmed my worst of fears, surely, I pray God that I think aright, had but Pompilia's self the tender thing who once was good and pure, was once my lamb and lay in my bosom, had the well-known shape fronted me in the doorway, stood there, faint, with the recent pang, perhaps, of giving birth to what might, though by miracle, seem my child. Nay more, I will say, had even the aged fool, Pietro, the dotard, in whom folly and age wrought, more than enmity or malevolence, to practice and conspire against my peace, had either of these but opened, I had paused. But it was she, the hag, she that brought hell for a dowry with her to her husband's house, she, the mock mother, she that made the match and married me to perdition, spring and source of the fire inside me that boiled up from heart to brain and hailed the fury gave it birth. Violante Comporini, she it was, with the old grin amid the wrinkles yet, opened, as if in turning from the cross, with trust to keep the sight and save my soul, I had stumbled, first thing, on the serpent's head, coiled with a leer at foot of it. There was the end. Then was I wrapped away by the impulse, one immeasurable everlasting wave of a need to abolish that detested life. T'was done. You know the rest, and how the folds of the thing, twisting for help, involved the other two, more or less serpent-like. How I was mad, blind, stamped on all the earthworms with the asp, and ended so. Guido tries to make it evident that his act was that of a man careless of life. He claims that if he had thought of his own safety, he could have hired bravos to commit the murder or silently put his enemies out of the way by poison. So indifferent was he as to the result of his action that he took no pains to secure the warrant which would have given him the right to hire a conveyance to take him quickly to a place of safety. Clearly, my life was valueless. But since he has committed the deed, he is himself again. Health is returned, and sanity of soul. And he feels the instinct that bids him save his life. He appeals to his judges to vindicate his primal right to act as he did. He then bids them, Take my whole life, not this last act, alone, and asks, what has society to charge me with? He is a count, and he has given his life to the service of the church. His last patron was a cardinal, whom he left 
unconvicted of a fault, and who, by way of gratitude, had aided him in the matter of the marriage. He had in vain asked the court to annul the marriage, but he has allowance for a husband's right. He has, it is true, been charged with exceeding that right. Such acts, he says, as I thought just, my wife called cruelty. She had carried her complaints to the Archbishop and to the Governor of Arezzo, and they, with full knowledge of the facts, confirmed authority in its wholesome exercise. Some say that their decision was influenced by friendship, hereditary alliance, prejudice for the name of a Franceschini, that could not be urged in this court. There are those who may say that the decision of his judges against him was caused by the popular clamour. He pleads also that he has only executed in his deed what the court had declared in a milder and less emphatic way, representing and carrying out its essential thought. The punishment of the court inflicted upon Pompilia and Caponsacchi shows that it deemed them guilty. If they were not wholly guilty, then the court had no right to punish them. He calls the attention of his judges to the fact that the court in Tuscany had condemned Pompilia to imprisonment for life, while the court in Rome had inflicted only a nominal punishment upon Caponsacchi for the breach of the priestly vow. He asks the court then to absolve him, the law's executant. Guido then gives the reasons why he should live. First, there is his mother, whom he wishes to care for in her old age. Let her come, break her heart upon my breast, not on the blank stone of my nameless tomb. Then his brothers need help, and he also wishes to lift up the youth and innocence of his son Gaetano. Guido, however, does not make the slip, which some interpreters say he does, by admitting that Gaetano is his son, and thus implying Pompilia's innocence and the inexcusableness of her murder. He is too much on his guard for that. He speaks of him as one whom law makes mine, or as one who may be his by miraculous mercy. At the close of his defence, Guido represents himself as a self-sacrificing defender of the social sanctities. And when, in times made better through your brave decision now, might but utopia be, Rome, rife with honest women and strong men, manners reformed, old habits back once more, customs that recognise the standard worth, the wholesome household rule in force again, husbands, once more God's representative, wives, like the typical spouse, once more, and priests, no longer men of Belial, with no aim at leading silly women captive, but of rising to such duties as yours now. Then will I set my son at my right hand, and tell his father's story to this point, adding, The task seemed superhuman, still I dared, and did it, trusting God and law. They approved of me. Give praise to both. And if, for answer, he shall stoop to kiss my hand, and, peradventure, start thereat, I engage to smile. That was an accident in the necessary process. Just a trip of the torture irons 
in their search for truth. Hardly misfortune, and no fault at all. In considering the character of Count Guido, we must remember that he is speaking at his own trial, aware that every word he says is weighed by his judges. He is anxious to appear at his very best. What, then, does his speech tell us of himself? He is evidently proud of his family, which, if not the oldest, is admitted by all to be next to the oldest in Tuscany. He is deeply touched by the poverty into which it has fallen. He suffers because of the exposures made of the little economies of his home. How his mother makes the brocade strips of the seamy side of the wedding gown by raiment for a year. How she dresses up the lamb's head with her own hands, and how the wine used is three parts water. He is tortured by the gossip of the town, which reports that he beats his wife. His whole soul rides at the thought of his marriage to Pompilia, who drew breath first mid Rome's worst rankness, through the deed of a drab and a rogue. The imputation of dishonour to a member of his family, his younger brother, revolts his nature, so that he cries, Must I burn my lips with the blister of a lie? He also seems deeply religious, and begins his speech in a most approved orthodox form, in the name of the indivisible trinity. All this may, of course, have been assumed, and must not be taken too seriously. His real character comes out when he attempts to extenuate his course of conduct. He knows he is censured because he had bought a young girl by means of his title, as if flesh and blood were aware. He ought, it is said, to be ashamed of such an avowal. But Guido does not think so. What, he declares, is Franceschinihood worth if it cannot be bartered for something? Deny that titles have a market value, and no one would care to have them. Why should one work for fifty years to obtain a title if it could not serve to secure a girl's hand or a fool's purse? If titles had no value in the market, it would have been better for him to have spent his life as a dancer or a prizer, trades that pay. On the other hand, bid this buffoonery cease. Admit that honour is a privilege. The question follows, privilege worth what? Why, worth the market price, now up, now down. Just so with this, as with all other ware, Therefore, assay the market, sell your name, style and condition to who buys them best. People have often acted upon this theory, but it has seldom been set forth in such blunt and brutal fashion. Titles, no doubt, do have a money value, but Guido declares they have nothing more. He has no perception of the honour which is above all price, and he is incapable of seeing that while his position is a recognition of past services, it also entails an obligation to the performance of present duties. It is strange that a man, so proud of his family name, should be willing to degrade it into a ware to be sold to the highest bidder, because the moment titles become purchasable, they are no better than any other article in the market. But Guido is not content with the reduction of his title into a marketable commodity, 
he also reveals himself as a man to whom truth is not sacred. He has no sense of its intrinsic value. He is accused of gilding fact with fraud in the matter of the marriage. He had made himself richer than he really was. In reply, he virtually says that that is of no consequence. He had carried out the essence of the bargain, had given what he said he would give, and what the other parties really wanted. What he said about his fortune was but a flourish round the figures of a sum, for fashion's sake, that deceives nobody. But it did deceive poor Pietro and Violante, and it was meant to deceive them. When Guido is charged by the court with having written the letter attributed to her, he admits that he had caused her to trace the characters which he himself had first written, but he seeks to free himself from blame by the plea that he had induced her to do what she ought to have done. He was like the priest who makes the palsied finger cross the forehead at the critical time, or who answers for the babe at its baptism. In these cases, however, only good was meant to the persons for whom these things were done, while in his case, what he assumed to do for Pompilia meant harm to her and to those whom she loved. Another example of Guido's disregard of the truth is disclosed in his account of the letters which he alleged had passed between Pompilia and Caponsacchi, and which, he declared, had been found in the room of the inn where they had been overtaken and apprehended. He notices the denial of their authorship which had been made by them both, but he gives no proof to show that they did write them. He merely tells a story to illustrate his thought that, of course, they must make a denial of some kind, and passes on to something else. The whole case rested upon the authorship of these letters, and if Guido had felt certain that his wife and the priest had written them, he would not have passed over them so lightly. If he knew they were forgeries, he had no right to use them. His treatment of them only shows more clearly that he never hesitated to subordinate the truth to his own purpose. Guido discloses himself as a man who was always conscious of his rights, but never of his duties. In all his discussion of marriage, he remembers the obligations imposed by it upon Pompilia, but he altogether forgets his obligations to her. He complains that his wife violated her pact, that she did not act as a wife should, but he never once raises the question whether he had acted as, according to the vows made in marriage, he should have acted towards his wife. He illustrates his relation to Pompilia as that of an order to a monk. If he enters it and finds its way different from what he expected, if he had fancied Francis' manner meant roast quails, and so revolts against its regimen, he must not hope to have the order change its rules for his convenience, but rather expect punishment for his refusal to conform to them. But here Guido forgets one side of the matter, the right of the monk to demand that his order shall do what, in its rules, it promises to do. If the monastic institution violates his duty to the monk, it must expect to be called to account for it. All this Guido leaves out of his consideration. Then again, he treats Pompilia as if she were wholly free in her choice of a husband. 
If this were so, then she had no right to blame him for being what he was. It could be said to her, You knew him and chose to take him for a husband. Now Guido's friends say to him, The fact is, you are forty-five years old, nor very comely, even for that age. Girls must have boys. And he replies, Why, let girls say so then. He utterly ignores the fact that his wife had no more choice in her marriage than the lamb has about being carried to the shambles. He is very clear as to what is due to himself. He expects from the bride loyalty and obedience, and he cries, With a wife I look to find all wifeliness, as when I buy, timber and twig, a tree, I buy the song of the nightingale inside. But he has not a word to say of what a wife had a right to look for in a husband. So it is throughout the whole defence of Count Guido Franceschini. Such is the art of Browning that in spite of himself he reveals what he essentially is. His defence is an unconscious accusation of himself. End of chapter 6